Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. And if you're curious about whether or not I can say expert, I can. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Clark, the Wilson Professor of Paleontology at the University of Texas at Austin and a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, where I ask her, what was poppin' in prehistoric America? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this week's episode because, honey, I have been very curious lately about dinosaurs. And then I'm minding my own business and I meet Dr. Julia Clark, who is a Wilson Professor of Paleontology at the University of Texas at Austin, and you're a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology. That's correct. So you are a expert in dinosaurs and and their history. Yeah. So what I study is, um, I like to say I study how new behaviors and structures arise in deep time. And, and the group that I study that in is dinosaurs. And what I'm talking about is like, how did dinosaurs gain flight? How did they get feathers? Wow. So, but yes, I study dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. So when we got to Texas, I started, and I think it's not even just Texas. A lot of my life, I've often wondered, like, when I look around a place, like, I wonder what this would have looked like before it was completely developed and there was, like, old school, like, stuff, you know, everywhere. So it's, like, 250 million years ago. What kind of animals were roaming the Earth? I'm going to take a guess, and then you tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, was it like a gigantic single cell fucking like sea anemones uh, or like gigantic manatees that were the size of like three buses or um or was it like only like sea life because there was like so much oceans 250 million years ago um, I love those suggestions. I mean, I'm personally a huge fan of manatees, but manatees are very recent. Got it. So no manatees are around. They don't evolve. They're not going to evolve for like at least another 200 million years oh, from fuck. later. Um, giant sea anemones. Um, so sea anemones are are really interesting. I don't know of any giant ones, but what we do have that's giant, and you can see here in Austin, actually, in our Texas Memorial Museum, is we had giant uh, salamander relatives. So these would be like over six feet long. Their skull length is huge, and they're actually really cute looking, I think, Um, but they're killers. They were predators, land predators, but they couldn't um, lay eggs away from the water. So in that sense, they're, they're amphibians. How do we know that? Well, from what they're related to and from the fact that they lack traits that all egg-laying, uh, you know, things that lay eggs away from water that we call amniotes, they lack features to put them in that group. So that's how we would know that they they haven't yet evolved that trait that we see later on um, in amniotes, if that makes any sense. But anyway, giant amphibians and sail-backed you know these things, like sometimes if you buy like a fun pack of dinosaur, plastic dinosaur things, there's one that has like a big sail. Yes. It's not a dinosaur. Um, it, it It's not. No. It's not. But no. it's a four-legged, big scaly creature. Yeah, and it has a huge, huge sail on the back. 
and it's like walking on four legs. Yeah, we definitely saw those in a Land Before Time. Yes. Which so, basically gives me like 40% of my dinosaur knowledge, <laughs> and then Jurassic Park gives me probably my other 60%. So, so we'll have to circle back on the Jurassic Park things because we can like get into that. But these sailback guys are not actually dinosaurs. Neither are those giant amphibians. Um, the sailback guys are more closely related to us. No. Yes. So we have these these reptiles, like the, we we call them reptiles, but they don't fit our our current definition of reptiles. But they're essentially early precursors of mammals, which is what you and I are. But these mammals lacked hair. Um, they were egg laying. They were all egg laying, uh, and they had these huge fins. Anyway, they're gonna go um, basically go extinct. And in this world after that, after this dominated, this landscape dominated by the giant amphibians and these sailback mammals, mammal relatives, um, you're going to see dinosaurs coming into that picture. Okay, really quick. Really qu- yeah. Sail, the sail mammals. Yes. Did they like, did they have... Did like Dimetrodon would be an example. Did they, like, breastfeed or something? How do we know they're, like, mammal-related? So they share unique characteristics of, for example, the skull with mammals that they don't share with lizards or alligators or birds or any of our fossils that are parts of the that group. So we know they're more closely related to mammals. In fact, that record is really good. It goes from the sailback guys to these guys that look... they're. Co- often called therapsids. They look like super kind of like like they're on steroids. They're real beefy guys that are around in the early part of the Triassic. And, you know, it's going to be a long time until you get little mini mammals, you know, like the ones that uh, survive the KPG extinction that are all basically no bigger than a, a beaver size. Those guys that are hair covered, that that suckled their young, et cetera, those are much later, so younger than around 150 million. Okay, so what makes the 250 million years ago period record really good that went from the sailback guys to the more steroid beefy guys. Well, in Texas, we have, so in the in West Texas, we have the Permian Basin, and this has got a, extensive fossil deposits that give us insight into that period right after the mass extinction again. Which is the KPG thing? No, this is the one that, that starts off the age of dinosaurs right around 250 million years ago. What's that about? So that's that's the big one. Okay, so that's the mass extinction event. We say that there are uh, three to four mass extinction events that shape dinosaur evolution. The first one is the one right around uh, 250 million years ago, and that's like the big one. So that's the biggest mass extinction we know about in the history of life. Is that a volcano-based one? We think that that is a giant volcano-based one. Got it. And it and it really decimates both marine systems and land systems, and is, there's a huge turnover in diversity. And after that, it's not immediately, but after that, dinosaurs come on the scene. And they come on the scene in what I like to call an army of these more active, bipedal uh, archosaurs. Now, like, archosaurs are your crocs and your birds and your all your and extinct dinosaurs. And they're two-footed? Yes, like us. 
And like, so like T Rexy and this, like, because don't, weren't they more on their hind legs, like standing up? Totally. T Rex definitely two legged, living birds all two legged um, in terms of two legs on the ground. But in these early archosaurs, they weren't all necessarily always upright on two legs, but a lot of them had the capability of, of switching to being more on their hind limbs. So during certain gates, and they were predators mostly. And but I have to come back to the two other mass extinctions. Yes. One is gonna is basically right between the the Triassic and Jurassic, mm. and that one is going to lead to the dominance of dinosaurs in the landscape. All these other archosaurs are going to kind of become less dominant, and dinosaurs are really that's the beginning of the real age of dinosaurs, where dinosaurs are dominating these terrestrial ecosystems or land ecosystems. And then the last one last one of the past is 66 million years ago. Everybody goes extinct except relatives of your chickens, your ducks, your ostriches, all the lineages we have today. And then, of course, the sixth mass extinction now that's, that's affecting our living dinosaurs. So basically... 250 million million years ago, there's a massive one that kind of gets dinosaurs as we think of them currently, like, even a little bit on the scene. So prior to 250 million years ago and that mass extinction, is that just, like, the the random ones in the water, like, getting a little bigger? And because isn't it, is it mostly water before that 250 million years ago one and not as busy? Yeah, I mean, things are starting to move on to land before the big mass extinction. So we have our first organ animals that can, like, lay eggs away from the water that are very, you know, right before that mass extinction. What happens is that the things that were dominating, yeah, maybe these giant amphibian dudes— they start dwindling out, and the guys that can lay eggs away from the water, you know, really are taken off. All different line- groups of them. And then the big mass extinction, and then comes back more like the say no. It, no, yeah, it's like no, exactly. It's like reshuffling the deck. Like so, certain things are favored by the environmental conditions, or can make it through, or are flexible enough to make it through. Um, the mass extinction, and those ecosystems are different. Those The plants that live in those ecosystems are different. Like, yeah. So in Texas, it's like the sale guys, and so wait, the ar- there's archa- archipods first. Archosaurs. Archosaurs first. Archipod, I don't know where they came from. Archosaurs first. Then it starts to be the sale guys and then the other people? No, the sale guys are around and the big giant amphibian dudes, and then the archosaurs which are your dino relatives and stuff, those guys are next. Oh, got it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And so they're around, like, so really quick on the mass— You want to focus on Texas or, or yeah? Oh, no, yeah, I love that. I mean, I love Texas too. But, like, but basically, like, all these mass extinctions are, like, basically volcano, volcano, volcano events, except for the volcano and asteroid, which was the most recent. And now we're, like, serving, like, humid climate change realness, which is equally as detrimental. Um, Exactly. But so Texas basically looks— a million, or a million, 250 million years ago, it looks like foresty, deserty. Man, you know. Marsish. 
No, no, definitely not Marsish. This would be pretty a pretty rich. I think you would think of like a pretty wet ecosystem um, because you also still have those amphibian dudes. You know, I mean, it has it's it's relatively moist, um, lots of vegetation. The big transformation in Texas during the age of dinosaurs, which is really striking, is later, and that's when an inland sea will will basically split North America in half. And that's later in the Mesozoic, but you're going to split the entire continent. So you're going to have dinosaurs of the East Coast and dinosaurs of the West, Western U.S. And those dinosaurs are separated by a seaway that goes from like the Gulf of Mexico area, Texas, all the way up through Canada. Oh. So it's basically splitting the continent in half. Is that an Ice Age thing? No, it's not. It's a sea level thing. Um, but it's not ice-related. It it has to do more with, like, tectonic, you know, the position of the continents and um, things like that. Where so, does the Ice Age come into play? The Ice Age is really recent. So the Ice Ages that we think about with, like, mammoths and mastodons, and a lot of folks, like, think those are dinosaurs. You know, dinosaurs are cool, big, prehistoric, but they're not dinosaurs. Those are mammals because they're covered in hair and they— you know, um, they're closely related to elephants. That's, but that happened post-66. Or- oh, totally. Yeah, it's, that's in the thousands of years scale. And But was North America looking like North America by the Ice Age? Yeah, I mean, that inland sea had retracted away, so it was no longer there. But you do have, like, massive transformations that happen with the Ice Ages. So this is on the thousands of years scale. And in those, you have a giant ice sheet that's sitting uh, covering most of Canada. And and then you're going to have all the drainages, the water that comes off that ice sheet. And that ice sheet actually depresses the whole continent, you know. Um, it's so heavy, we're still rebounding from that ice no longer being here. So it's very recent timescale, much after the extinction of the non-bird dinosaurs. Bird dinosaurs would be affected by that, but not not anything like a T-Rex or a Stegosaurus or something. So 250 years ago, things are kind 250 million. of— 250 million. I'm so sorry. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yes. So 250 <laughs> million years ago, Texas is like above water. Things are basically looking like now, but South America is still touching like Antarctica. Things are still like—I'm like you. just kind of recapping where we've yeah, gone so yeah. far. Um, things, that's how things are kind of looking. But then after the big 250 million, like big one— at what point does the water thing happen? Is, and is that part of a mass extinction where water, like, spreads over the middle of North America? Yeah, that's going to be later. So that's mostly Cretaceous. So that's— Is that 100 million years? A m- little more. But, yeah, like, it's—so it's around 120, 120 million. So I'm—you know, I'm not remembering when the first parts of that incursion occur— Um, But the Cretaceous is actually named the Cretaceous. It references chalk, and chalk forms—chalk is basically the little skeletons of unicellular life. And, you know, like the white cliffs of Dover in England are Cretaceous, and they're white, right, chalk. And that forms—that's why we call the Cretaceous 
the Cretaceous, and because there were a lot of shallow seas where there was a high sea level stand and it covered all of Europe was an archipelago. Um, North America was split in half by these shallow seas. As I said, in South America, you have a sea that extends into big portions of the Amazonian basin. Um, so you have a lot of these shallow seas where the little tiny microorganisms with shells die and they make chocks. Oh, my God. I cannot even get over that. I can't believe the White Cliffs of Dover are Cretaceous. I've literally seen those. I can't believe we're going to take a really quick break. We're going to be right back with more Dr. Clark right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Menes. I also have learned, and correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't fossil fuels mostly like fossils from gigantic ancient trees that we then like burn? Yeah, so fossil fuels are dead life. They could be dead life that's mostly unicellular in the oceans, that uh, died and accumulated in great layers. It could be trees. It could be, you know, plants on land that accumulate and are compressed and heated and variety of things and become fuels that power our cars. And I like to remind, since I'm in a school with a lot of people who are oil and gas interested, I have in my office a picture, a painting of a dinosaur with a bunch of cars suckling on the dinosaur, just to keep people reminded that this relationship with past life and what we power so much of our lives with. How did these deposits come to, did they, a lot of them I would imagine would have happened in the mass extinction events themselves. Not necessarily. So over time, it's just like the nature of a a setting. So if you are going to get a big accumulation of dead life, that can occur at various periods. For example, periods of time where you have a lot of life. Like, so not necessarily kind of a mass extinction event. Um, It's more to do with the settings in which this dead life is going to accumulate and be rapidly buried. So not necessarily linked with with mass extinctions, but mass extinctions have totally shaped the life we have today, including our dinosaur life today. Okay, So, oh, why? How? (laughs) Well, because we had a mass extinction around 66 million years ago, and all of the non-bird dinosaurs went extinct, but those that are related to species we have today survived. And those different groups of these dinosaurs that survived gave rise to all of the birds we have today. And those are, that's 10,000 species of living dinosaurs on Earth today. So it's pretty striking in terms of like, well, we don't have things like T-Rex or we don't have birds with teeth, but we do have all of our chickens and penguins and ostriches and songbirds and all of these things that are living dinosaurs. So they're incredibly, dinosaurs are incredibly successful today. Um, although I should say they're experiencing a bit of um, of hardship. That's an understatement in the sixth mass extinction, that one that is occurring right now. So there's been five, and and climate change is the sixth. The the idea is that the change that Earth is undergoing so right now is so rapid. It it would fit the definitions we've had for a mass extinction in terms of how fast species are going extinct and how it's outpacing 
new species arising. So that's the premise of this sixth mass extinction that that we think we're in right now. So was the one 66 million years ago, was that the one that wiped out the dino- the, all the non-bird dinosaurs? Yes. So that's the one with the whole comment in the Yucatan Peninsula and, like, ash going around the Earth? Yes. For, so is Pangaea not a thing at, at 66 million years ago, or are we past Pangaea, and it's looking like North America, South America? And, and does it look like how it is now? It looks more like how it is now, 66 million years ago. You still got some things that are, are like, for example, South America is still connected to Antarctica 66 million years ago. Um, you have some other, uh, you know, the continents don't look precisely the same shape. For example, in South America, there's a, a huge ocean where the Amazon is today. Oh. So things are still pretty different looking, but definitely Pangaea has, has basically broken up or almost entirely broken up by this time. This is an extremely specific question. Yes. But it just came to my mind. What about Madagascar? Was that still—isn't Madagascar that, like, kind of rectangle that's attached to Africa? Well, it's not attached, but it's super but near, it, it, super it, it, near it, it. Yeah, that's what I meant. It's not attached, but it, would, do you think those were attached 66 million years ago? So, actually, Madagascar splits off pretty darn early. So, Madagascar is already on its own 66 million years ago. Interesting. And I know, but to- what's totally cool is— is India it has started this journey from Antarctica, and it passes by Madagascar, and we don't know how much exchange there is as India d- d- uh, voyages north to run into to, um, Asia, right? So you can picture Madagascar sitting there, Africa's over next to it, and India is on this giant journey from being part of Antarctica to coming up and then eventually contacting Asia, which is fascinating for, you know, what animals were on India that were going to end up contacting groups of animals that they had not previously encountered in in Asia, for example. Okay. So that's kind of going on. And Pangea is like what, like 200 million years ago or something? 500? Plus. 200 plus. Yeah, yeah. So Pangea is assembled in basically the Paleozoic, and that's going to end right around 250, 250 million years ago. And then Pangaea starts breaking up as we move into the age, the so-called age of dinosaurs, the Mesozoic, and that's from a right around 250 to 66. So, you know, the continents are, are separating South America from India and, like, all these things that we recognize today as present-day continents are kind of separating over the age of dinosaurs. Wow. Of non-avian dinosaurs. So then we get to 66 million years yep. ago, which is—and that's when I inter- interrupted with the question. But so there's a big series of debate around, like, how long that extinction took place. Well, I mean, you know, we've had remarkable insights in just the last year. I mean, in the last year, there have been at least three papers refining what we call the chronology or the dating of that mass extinction. And a lot of new insights have come from work that's actually been done at— Uh, in part by scientists at at UT, my colleagues, where they drilled into the crater itself and could actually get fine-scale, you know, when does life reappear in the crater, unicellular life? And it turns out it's super rapid. So unicellular life is coming back into that crater, the crater of doom, you know, where the asteroid hit, relatively quickly. And the question is, you know, parsing what happens on the order of days, what happens on the order of months, what happens on the order of years, Yeah, but like super, you know, fast 
in terms of how how that impact of the crater is going to spread globally. Okay, I have a question. Yes. So when that impact happens in what is, you know, Mexico now, like the Yucatan Peninsula, there, there, there was probably not— because isn't that crater what makes Yucatan Peninsula? No? Where is the, Where is that crater? So it's like— so, you know what I like to think about? Have you been to the Yucatan? I've been, yeah, I think I've, I've been to, like, Isla Mujeres and, like, Cancun <laughs> and, like, and, like, um, and Tulum. Did you ever go to a sacred cenote where you yes. can, can like, dive in and, yes. and they're deep pits? And so clear. Okay, so the cenotes are on the outer crater wall. So the on the out so those cenotes form on kind of the outer outermost rim of the crater, and uh, rim is probably maybe not necessarily the right word, but those sinkholes formed because there was like loose ground up debris on land, and those sinkholes form, and so you can think of that as you were on the outermost reaches of the crater impact, but a lot of that impact was right off land. And it was in the the sea between the Yucatan and, like, the Gulf of Mexico. So the crater itself is just mostly off land. It does have some, like, outer, you know, uh, crater parts that are where the sacred cenote line is formed. But that is um, into these shallow waters. And we think that one of the reasons that 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 impact was so devastating is that it hit all these carbonates, which are like shallow marine rocks. And the chemistry of those rocks maybe made that impact particularly devastating in terms of what it threw up into the upper atmosphere and how it changed climate potentially relatively rapidly. Oh, After interesting. The impact, yeah. So that was basically what I was asking. I was like, did it, I guess, like, I was like, did, was it, like, land there and then, like, this big asteroid made it water? But no, it was, like, it already, it hit, hit an ocean. It hit, like, ocean water anyway. Yes. Interesting. So do you think that it caused tsunamis or no? Do they know? We know. We know it did cause tsunami. It did? Yeah, yeah. Like, big ass, how do we know that? Because in, actually, um, the edges of, like, the Caribbean and southern part of the U.S., there's tsunamites. So these are rock deposits that uniquely form during during tsunamis. And we have tsunami signatures in, in areas close to the actual impact. So these weren't that we know of global tsunamis, but they were tsunamis that affected the region near where the crater was. And they're very clear rock deposits indicating there were tsunamis. Yeah. That is fascinating. But we're causing as much impact in the environment in very different ways in our in our human-modified environment that it, it's a different kind of impact, but we think this is on the scale of what, what changed, uh, caused mass extinctions in the past because of the extinction rates we see for, for living species and the extent of human-modified environments today. So we don't have those giant volcanoes, but we have us. Well, maybe the ads that we're about to listen to will help turn that climate change frown upside down. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Dr. Julia Clark after the break. Hey. So welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Venice. Okay, so generally, like, what do we know about how dinosaurs looked sounded like I think you know I was saying earlier like the land before time and Jurassic Park make up a lot of my my working understanding of dinosaurs so how much do we how much has Hollywood gotten it correct well it depends on the movie 
which ones, like the original Jurassic Parks movies or the Jurassic World series, the more recent one, because there's a, there's a pretty big difference in how accurate those movies are. So the first Jurassic Park movie really tried to get the, the, the new science right. You know, it showed the dinosaurs as more bird-like. They, like, are, you know, there are tiny dinosaurs that act in this very bird-like way. And it really incorporated the science that, you know, said birds are living dinosaurs. And that had actually been around for a long time. When you get to the most recent movies, the dinosaurs slobber a lot. And they um, really don't look like what we now know most dinosaurs would look like. And that's when I think we've kind of lost the trail. You know, they have one line in the new Jurassic World movie where they say, well, we know dinosaurs were mostly fuzzy or feather-covered, but we, we chose not to make our new hybrid dinosaur have that. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. And that's a cop-out because I think you can make really scary dinosaurs if you want to do that that are scientifically accurate. So most dinosaurs, we have some evidence for, like, bristles or fuzz on a lot of our charismatic dinosaurs, like large tyrannosaurids with bristle-like structures on their body, Um and also, you know, maybe, like, legs that were more scaly. And um, how do we know that? Like, when you find a fossil that, like, how do we know that there was, like, those structures on the sides? Yeah. So, I mean, the big insights have come out of fossil deposits mostly in northeastern China. And they actually are—they're they're in lake beds that— the, the lakes deepened quite rapidly, and the and sediment came in, very fine sediment, really rapidly buried stuff. And it, it preserves re- in really fine detail structures that are usually not preserved in the fossil record, like filaments or feathers, et cetera. And so in the last about, you know, 20 to 30 years, we now have, like, small-bodied tyrannosaurids that are covered in kind of bristle structures and large-bodied tyrannosaurids with, like, bristle structures. And then we have small-bodied, small things that are relatives of triceratops that have bristles on the tail, but most of their body is skin. Would a bristle look more like a porcupine sort of thing? or Just think of, like, a really, like, a thick... Um, it's not a hair. It's definitely not a hair, but you can think of a bristle like a thick hair. So that would just, that's the diameter that I'm talking about. Um, it's not, they are not hairs. So our hairs and our our fingernails, our, our hair is made out of alpha keratin, but all the structures in reptiles are basically made out of beta keratin, which has different properties. So these filaments are not hairs, but they would have looked kind of hair-like. And so a bristle is just like a super thick hair. And, and that's that's where how we use the term when we're not talking about dinosaurs. And then these dinosaurs that have like um so but really not as rigid as a porcupine. A porcupine can stab you with those things. A bristle is more flexible or bendy. I was trying to think of a good way to say that. Yeah. So is there really like any dinosaur that we would have that that we grew up thinking about really you know I'm 32 like grew up in public schools that it's like uh, so was there really any dinosaur that was totally scaly in the way that we think of them now or were they all having more bristles and or feathers So huge you know people debate this I think I'm going to give you my picture of it we don't have any evidence yet of bristles in the 
Uh, if you think of the four-legged guys like the Sinclair oil dinosaur, do you know what that dinosaur is? It's the sauropod dinosaurs. So these are the super big dinosaurs. They're quadrupedal. The huge, um, long necks. Huge, long necks, tiny heads. Yes, long, yes, 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 little foot. Yes, little foot, exactly. Yes. So we don't have any evidence yet of of bristle structures in dinosaurs like that. So what about they the seem hard head ones like Sarah? Sarah is part is cl- fairly closely related to Triceratops, and and we do have evidence of parts of that lineage having bristles. We don't have any evidence yet from that particular kind of dinosaur, but relatives of it, yes. And so probably in Jurassic Park and Land Before Time, would the, all of those dinosaurs probably not lived at the same time? Oh, yeah. Definitely they mashed up dinosaurs from different time periods. For most of the movies, um, they're well, just putting ones from different time periods. I know. It's very confusing. Son of a bitch. I wish they wouldn't have done that. That's very confusing. Yes. That is so rude. So I have a question. So how do you know that the that the, that the filaments or, or the structures that you see, like, how do you— like, how do you know that that wasn't like some other animal that fell on top of it? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I mean, when we first found the first one or two of these things, they were like, for example, the first time we saw these fuzzy structures in dinosaurs, they were um, there were only a couple of specimens known. And so people thought maybe that dinosaur just like died on top of a plant that looked bristle-shaped. But that's been refuted because we also find more examples of the same dinosaur with the same structures. And so it didn't keep falling on top of a plant. Do you over know what I mean? Over and over yeah. and over and you can look at the fine structure of these things and they're not plant-like. Um, the other thing that's pretty cool is when we found feathers, and that was the big remarkable thing, is that in the dinosaurs most closely related to our birds today, we found all sorts of feathers, and we keep finding more. And so now I would have to say is probably in the thousands of specimens of things with f- true feathers from mostly these deposits in China. And those are in the dinosaurs that are, like, related to Velociraptor, related to Troodon, those What did Troodon look like? Well, Troodon is a North American dinosaur, but Troodon's relatives from these deposits in China, oh, my God, they're so cool. They're, like, they could fit on my lap, so they're they're tiny, and they've got uh, all different kinds, like, depending on the species of feathery arrays. So the the one that I worked on, which was Kaihongjuji, which is uh, uh, with the rainbow dinosaur, it, it, it could fit on my lap and then have this fan tail— and then a little tiny head that I think looks like a little mini velociraptor skull. And then short little wings that are fully feathered. And then feathery legs as well. And then they're feathery all the way down to the tips of their where they have their um, toe claws. So we're talking like there is different dinosaurs, like s- small feathered ones and huge ones with feathers. Yeah. Well, you know, huge animals generally, they have a problem with heat loss. So like an elephant has less hair than a mouse, right? Because it essentially you could overheat as a super large mammal. Uh-huh. So we anticipate that super large dinosaurs would be less likely to be covered in 
in structures that would be insulating. So, you know, it was interesting to see bristles on the, on the skull and on parts of the body in this large T-Rex-sized dinosaur, um, but maybe those weren't dense and covering the whole body like hair. There were, like, bristles and in, in parts of the body that could be used, you know, for show— um, but you would you would hit issues of heat loss. So we don't know of any really large dinosaurs that are completely feather covered as of yet. Now, what about extinct dinosaurs? I should say. What about colors? Like, is there any like fossils that would give evidence to like a certain color of something? Yeah, I mean, there were breakthroughs which were really cool in in starting in around um, two thousand eight that showed that in these fossil feathers, in these these lake deposits mostly, um, you could take a fossil feather, put it in a scanning electron microscope, and you could see tiny structures that um, are the same size and shape as the color-conferring structures that are most common in living birds and mammals. And these are called, um, these little structures are called melanosomes. They're in your hair or my hair. They're in bird feathers. They're in... um, dinosaur feathers, so extinct dinosaur feathers as well. And the shape of these structures correlates with the color of the hair or the feathers. So, for example, in red-haired individuals, the little melanosomes tend to be round. And in in reddish-brown bird feathers, they tend to be round. But in black hair and black feathers, they tend to be longer and skinnier. So we could start finding these things and sample little tiny samples all over extinct dinosaurs that had feathers, and we could compare them to living birds and estimate the color patterns of extinct dinosaurs for the first time. But that would have been like red, brown, and black families? like And white, because white's the absence of these structures in most— the simplest way to make white is the absence of these melanosome structures. So that was the first color maps that w- that that were put forward. Um, and then we found evidence of iridescence, so unique structures that these long, skinny melanosomes that are uniquely associated with shiny blacks, for example, shiny black feathers. So then, where do you think the most untapped or most like undiscovered? Uh, fossil records could be that, like, we just aren't on to yet? Um, well, I'm I'm pretty excited about the work that we do in, in the si- high southern latitudes. So Antarctica and southernmost Chile, I just got back last week from being down uh, collaborating with Chilean paleontologists there. Because you, you got to go somewhere um, that hasn't been extensively studied. I mean, the truth is new fossils are coming from all over. You know, Europe, there are new fossil deposits being found uh, in your backyard. If you have a backyard with rocks of the right age, you could find something new. So d- discoveries can be made anywhere. Um, I'm, you know, I'm still, I think we got a lot of new stuff that's coming out from all over the world. So it's no one location. I still think these feathered dinosaurs are have been incredibly important in changing our ideas about major ideas about what dinosaurs looked like. So you're I, and we're going to start to wrap up. My so apologies. We have to have you back because you're just incredibly fascinating. And I think also for me, and I think for so many of our listeners, like. This is such an, a fascinating topic that we have to like get like a a more general understanding of to even go into like what you're 
expertises, but we have to, like, I mean, all this has been your expertise, but, like, what you really, like, what you hone in on. Because really what you study so much of is, like, is, like, feather, like, feather evolution in dinosaurs. Is that, like— Well, so I like to study, like, okay, you know, we—think of it this way. We've had more than— you know, four billion years of Earth history. And throughout Earth history, new structures came on, new wave behaviors, new features of the body came on the scene that totally changed, you know, a group's interaction with its environment. So in the case of feathers, you get flight today enabled by feathers. Feathers arose for some other reason, and then they're co-opted to enable flight, which characterizes this amazing diversity of living dinosaurs today. So how did that happen, right? So, But I also am super-duper interested right now in um, the evolution of uh, sound-making in dinosaurs, including living birds. And that's where we found the first fossil evidence of a fossilized vocal organ from the age of dinosaurs. So... We've been doing this work to try to figure out, well, what, what, how would we approach the question of what did T-Rex sound like? And so that's kind of, that's another novel behavior, novel structure slash behavior interaction that I want to study. I want to figure out how that, how that, those changes occurred in, in deep time. What was the vocal box attached to? Like what kind of animal? I mean, you're trying to wrap, wrap up right now, Jonathan. I could, I could talk to you for an hour about this because like you and I are talking right now using our larynx or our voice box, but birds have a unique vocal organ that sits, I like to say, well, it sits right behind the heart. So you can kind of remember that by thinking birds, living dinosaurs, sing from the heart, if you will, right behind the heart. So they have a a vocal organ that's where their windpipe branches into two parts and goes to the lungs. That's where they have muscles, they have vocal folds, and they don't make sound from their larynx. But if you think about what a larynx can do, human language is enabled by a larynx. So why did dinosaurs uniquely evolve a structure in a different part of their body that no other animal did? No other animal does this. Why did that happen? How did that happen? And how is that related to complex vocal communication in birds? Because birds haven't, like, think of a parrot which can mimic human speech. Chimps and other uh, primates cannot mimic human speech, but a parrot can mimic human speech. Oh, and that's How like, does that happen? And a parrot would be more similar. Is that— It's a living dinosaur. Yes. So basically dinosaurs could would sound less like roary and maybe more birdy. Yeah. Birdish. Well, it's definitely less roary because think about what your mouth does when you make a roar. Rah. Right? Okay, dinosaurs have no lips. They don't have um, the mobile tongue that we have, which is shaping most of our sound making. So what you have is um, sounds that can be really menacing. Um, if you think of crocodile sounds, those are made with the larynx as well, or even some birds. So like ostriches, we could go to an ostrich farm right outside Austin here, and the males inflate their entire esophagus and make these boom calls. They're like, I can't, I can't really mimic it. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. 
Mm. But if you imagine something the size of a T-Rex doing something in this low-frequency booming, that's equally scary. It's just that we based a lot of our sounds for dinosaurs on lions and tigers and bears, which are not closely related to them. Roaring, that roar. Yeah. Okay. So, as we come into home, last question, (laughs) what do you think is the biggest misconceptions about about your field, about how we understand dinosaurs, about paleontology, about all of it. What do you think is the biggest misconception? Well, I think one big misconception is, like, it's all dudes that look like Indiana Jones. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, those were all my role. I wanted to be an explorer, but there weren't very many models for, like, women explorers. So I think one misconception is it's all guys who wear vests with, like, a lot of pockets and Mm -hmm. have a lot of multi-tools, you know, or that you need to have a strong back, you know, to lift heavy things. I mean, the stuff I work on is tiny. Like, I like tiny dinosaurs. So um, it's about your eyes. It's about recognizing things in the field, recognizing connections that maybe— that anybody can do, you know? I mean, that anyone can can do that that kind of science with training. And, and paleontology is not just about finding new fossils. It's finding a way to think about new questions that t- that take bring a new perspective to fossils. So that's what I, I guess those are the, my big misconceptions, I think. Thank you so much for your time. We have to have you back. Like, if you will honor us with your presence again, I would love to have you back. You're it's incredible. Been fun. You're just amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Dr. Julia Clark, um, you will find links to her work. You'll find all of her links in this episode of whatever you're listening to. And again, Dr. Julia Clark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Professor of Paleontology, Julia Clark. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe. Yes! Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, if you will, at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Julie Carrillo, Emily Bosick, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. 